your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. Uh, I want to take a, a brief break from the book Ecclesiastes. I, I say whenever we start Ecclesiastes, we, we, we probably wouldn't be real strict with the exposition and the timing and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but I want to do a, a brief series before the end of the year on a passage that's being sort of stuck with me uh, recently, and that is uh, Deuteronomy 6, particularly the, the Shema. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and, and soul. And what exactly do, do those terms mean? I know we say we should love God with all of our being, but what in the world does it mean to love God with all your heart? You mean your blood pumping muscle? Uh, what does that mean? Love God with all your soul. What is that? Love God with all your strength. Well, as a weakling American, that offends me a little bit, you know, because there ain't a whole lot of strength to love God with, right? Uh, I can't raise the roof for Jesus. I'm not strong enough. So um, what, what, what do we mean by, by this um, exactly? So Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, so let us stand in reverence of God's word. We'll read the first nine verses. We'll do an overview of the passage. And then for the next three weeks, Lord willing, we'll look uh, in some detail, particularly about loving, loving the Lord God. Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. You may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask, as always, you would open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, our entire being that we are called to love you with. May you open them so that we may receive your word, apply it to our lives, and bring glory to your name. Lord, this is your work. We ask that you would be kind to do so. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, have always been a member of a Southern Baptist church, and I'm about as Southern Baptist as John the Baptist is a Southern Baptist. Amen, right? No, but I, I do believe that, that Southern Baptists, uh, uh, theologically and whatnot, I had a professor in seminary who did a quick uh, review of, of starting from John the Baptist, how we got, oh, he went to landmarkers, but how we, how we went through Catholicism, Protestantism, and all that sort of stuff, landing on the Baptist uh, faith and message, 2000. And, and, and then one of the students asked, um, doctor, professor, uh, what comes next? We've seen the trajectory of, of, of church history, and uh, now here we are as Baptists. What, what comes next? What comes after the Baptists? He said, nothing. We're right, right? I don't know if I'm quite that bad, but I'm, I'm almost there, you know. Um, um, but nevertheless, I will confess that though I, I believe in, in Baptist polity and Baptist theology and, and Baptist distinctives and all of that, um, there is one area of weakness we never talk about, which only makes it a greater weakness. And that is our failure to properly catechize disciples. 
Now, what do I mean by this? Historically, um, you grew up in a Christian home. Your parents, not to mention your church, would have pulled you aside as part of your home education and walk you through either a confession of faith, like the Apostles' uh, Creed or the Nicene Creed or the uh, Chalcedonian Creed or whatnot, but really they would walk you through a catechism. Now, in, in uh, infant baptism denominations, particularly Presbyterianism, Methodism, Catholicism, uh, Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, ones like that, you would have baptism at birth, but then later you would have First Communion. And in order to partake in First Communion, the, the young child would then have to recite from memory the catechism. So a confession of faith, it lays out what it is that we believe, maybe in general, like the Apostles' Creed, or like the Nicene Creed, what we believe about Christ. Right? A catechism is usually a summary of the faith, usually targeted towards children, particularly children's catechisms, uh, or First Communion catechisms. And so it would be a question-and-answer approach. It would be um, uh, who created the world. And then you would recite uh, God Almighty created the heavens and the earth, or whatever it might be. Right? What is the Bible? Uh, the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus, something like that, right? And then you would have to recite that uh, in, in order to, to receive your, your first communion. But it didn't just stop there. It's not like you, you would catechize children and think, okay, you've done your homework, you graduated the church now, now you, you can move on with your life. But rather there was a pattern, an understanding that, that uh, catechizing disciples was the primary means of discipleship. To give you a historical context of this, uh, the Great Reformation came in the 16th century, beginning in Germany. It spread to France, Swiss, and in other parts. It eventually makes its way to England, and, uh, which I'm still not sure has ever been truly reformed. But then it lands in Scotland under the leadership of a guy by the name of John Knox. John Knox was as close to John the Baptist as we've gotten in history. He had the long beard and, and the growling voice. I don't know if it's growling or not, but I imagine it was growling. Uh, he famously or infamously made the queen cry. Um, and, uh, um, well, as the Scottish Kirk, the Scottish church reformed was being developed, quickly they realized they were missing a clearly articulate uh, articulated catechism for children and a catechism for adults. And so in 1580, they, they charged my ancestor, John Craig, to write an adult catechism. It, it was called a short summary of the faith. It is very long. It's like 100 pages question and answer. It's like every verse in the Bible is just about you know, um, raised in it, it seems like. But then by 1592, uh, the Scottish Kirk charged John Craig to write a shorter version known as Communion Catechism or Craig's Catechism. You can still read it today. Um, and it was for the purpose of catechizing young children for their first communion. Its theology is rich and it is deeper, than I would argue, than what your average adult believer has today. Because from infancy, they were being trained in the home, not just in the church, on what it is Christians believe and why we believe it. And I do believe it is time for us to rethink discipleship at the local church and the home arena. This is why this passage is so important. The one area that we have really failed as Baptists is we've done a poor job in discipling children, and we've done a poor job, frankly, of discipling adults. We have a confession of faith, but how many of us really know what is in it? 
This is a challenging passage we, we have here when we put it in our own context. Let us begin in verse 1 through 3 with the command. Remember that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. I stole that from D.A. Carson, so you can have it now. Uh, I won't tell him if, if, if you won't. Well, that is to say that every passage fits within an immediate context. It also fits within a broader context. Now, the broader context of this passage is that Israel is marching through the wilderness. And Deuteronomy is called that because it means in Greek, second law. Second law. That doesn't mean that, that uh, Moses just repeats everything he said in Exodus and Leviticus. What it does say is that Moses gives sort of a last will and testament to the Israelites as they prepare themselves to take the land of Canaan. Remember that Israel is finally going to become a nation. And the question is, what kind of nation are they to be like? And so God has graciously, through divine special revelation, given them his law, the Mosaic law. And thus Deuteronomy is designed to summarize who Israel was designed to be. And throughout the wilderness narrative, the promised land, we should note, uh, is, is described in Eden-like language. In fact, we, we see it some in, in this passage. You'll notice there at the end of verse 3 um, where it says, The land I promise you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now look, I don't drink a lot of milk. I put milk in my cereal and occasionally with a good chocolate chip cookie. I did this the other day. I was starving when I went around. I was starving. Dip a chocolate chip cookie in the milk. And I will try to, after I'm done eating the chocolate chip cookie, you, you have not had supper yet, and, and put in the milk, and then there's still the crumbs in the milk. And I try to convince myself the milk tastes good now that there's chocolate chip crumbs in there. It doesn't taste any better. No, no, you, you, it's premature clapping. Uh, you hate milk too. You, you don't know. It's, 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 it's all right. We'll work on that catechism there. Um, but uh, uh, so, so, so I'm not a big milk person. I'm not a big honey person. You put honey in anything, I suddenly don't like it. I know that makes me a, a, an anti-Southerner and heretic, but I've been, I've been called worse. You know, I am a, a straight male in the United States. But, um, but that doesn't sound like Eden to me because I don't want to land flowing milk and honey. I don't want to go Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, right? But the imagery is one of peace and blessing and joy and never being without. The Eden had the tree of life. And the rivers, the promised land has the land flowing with, with milk and honey. It's also the land where God will dwell with his people. That is very Eden-like because Eden was a garden amid a wilderness where God came down to dwell with his people. So too the promised land was to be the place where God comes down to dwells with his people who will extend their borders and reach the nations for Christ. And that is what... The, the Israelites was to be. So that, that's the broad context of, the, of this passage. There's also an immediate context here. And that immediate context is the Ten Commandments. Now, we typically think of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, the Israelites uh, land at Sinai, and they, they, it's a rest stop on the way to Canaan. They stop for like 40 years. And, and um, they're just hanging out. And in that context, Moses goes up to the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments, comes down, literally breaks the Ten Commandments because the Israelites are literally breaking the Ten Commandments, has to go back up to the mountain. This takes several chapters to describe, comes back down, hears the Ten Commandments. And then from the Ten Commandments comes the broader Mosaic law. So the Ten Commandments is, is uh, the cliff notes, if you will, of everything that comes in the Mosaic law um, 
from that? Well, it is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So Deuteronomy 5, uh, Moses again gives these Ten Commandments, uh, and he shows us that this provides a framework of peace, love, and justice in a society that is surrounded by violence, injustice, and power. Israel was to be a light unto the world. And through that, the nations will see that though it is right now governed by violence and power and injustice, it, 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 this is, it doesn't need to be governed that way. There is a, a better way of justice. And so, don't murder. That seems obvious to us because we met a man named Jesus. But throughout human history, including our current history, murder is just easier. Don't steal. Well, that makes sense to us because we've been to Calvary. But throughout most of history, I mean, if you can have what your neighbor has, you have it and your neighbor doesn't. When are you? Isn't this what the whole Viking thing was all about? So all the commandments show that, that society can be built on, on better things, a heaven on earth, if you will, if we agree to abide by God's will and way. In fact, you see it there in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules. This takes us right back to that immediate context of the Ten Commandments, and it's a clear reference to it. Now, just for the sake of, 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 of overview, the Ten Commandments are broken down. I realize this oversimplification. It's broken down into two parts. The first governs, uh, or laws governing proper worship. So in chapter 5, verse 7, we're told, you shall worship no other gods. Well, yeah, right? If, if your worship gets a little dicey if you're worshiping the wrong guy, right? And so Israel, right from the beginning, this first uh, law is very important. Worship God and God alone. Don't confuse God with other gods, lesser gods, smaller beings. Worship God alone. The second is like it, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 5. Don't make graven images of God because the greatest artist in the world is not capable of depicting the beauty, the majesty, and the power of God himself. No matter how well you try it. It doesn't matter what sort of CGI effects you use. And so when you, you, you make an image of God, then what you have is you're diminishing the glory of God. You are the image bearers of God. No need to diminish his glory. Thirdly, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Chapter 5, verse, verse 11. How many of us do, do that still today? Chapter 5, verse 12 through 15, the fourth one is to keep the Sabbath. And this is a pattern after creation. God has designed that we rest one day a week. Rest means more than napping or watching football. It can be part of that. But, what, but rest is a, is a day of reflection and worship. Those are the laws governing proper worship. Notice there are four of them. There are also laws governing proper ethics. This is how we love our neighbor. Chapter 5, verse 16, we are to honor our parents. Chapter 5, verse 17, we shouldn't murder people. Chapter uh, 5, verse 18, we shouldn't commit adultery, be faithful to our marriage vows. Have you, are you noticing that the second the family is undermined, society unravels? If you don't believe me, um, you should walk outside. What we've been experimenting in, in favor of momentary fleeting pleasure is the unraveling of a society that cannot sustain itself. We prefer pleasure over, over responsibility. Chapter 5, verse 19, theft. Do not steal. Verse 20, do not bear false witness, and, and which, which corrupts justice, of course. And then finally, verse 21, coveting. Uh, do not covet anything of your neighbors. 
Uh, of course, it gives a, a long list of what we could cover, but it's not limited by that list. You'll notice what you have here is basically if you keep the first commandment, no other God, you'll keep the other nine. Because if you, if, if, you, if you worship only God, you won't worship things and thus steal it. If you worship only God, you, you won't be tempted to murder because God doesn't approve of that. So on and so forth. If, if you worship God, you won't covet. Why? Because you have God. He is enough for you. At the same time, if you keep the tenth commandments, the previous nine will be kept. You won't be coveting after other gods because the one you have is perfectly fine. You'll be coveting your neighbor's wife. No adultery. You'll be coveting your, your neighbor's power tools because what you have is, is sufficient. You have contentment in everything else. So the first and the ten serve as type of bookends. Now, you'll notice here in verse 2 that, that the core of these commandments is not religion, but wisdom. He says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. We need to be clear that the Ten Commandments are not about rule keeping. It's about living by wisdom. It should be common sense that killing people isn't the way to go. It's not. That, that, that ruining people's households is not the way to go. Driven by unquenchable thirst and desires of our appetites, this coveting after everything isn't the way to go. Uh, these things should, should be common sense to us. The way of wisdom would understand it this way. But the way of wisdom is made clear here in the language of fearing God. I know that's confusing language to, to the modern reader, but consider what the Bible says about fearing God. He says in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice there, fools despise wisdom and knowledge because they do not fear God. When we fear the Lord... Out of that comes wisdom and knowledge. Hear, Shema, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Notice here that, that the wise one will fear the Lord and listen to wisdom and apply it to our lives. You see how freeing this is for the reader. Proverbs 3 verse 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Sounds like David that we've been reading recently. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see that to fear God is to turn away from evil. Those who fear God turn away evil. Much in the same way, I, there's a lot of things I didn't do growing up. I didn't want to be whooped. Fearing God at his very simplistic core is to shun evil. But not to shun evil, but to choose good and the wise and, and, and whatnot. Thus to Moses, the Ten Commandments were, were not moral bondage. They were liberating wisdom. Think about it. A society that tolerates violence will be overrun by it. A society that tolerates injustice and deceit will victimize the innocent. A society defined by envy and entitlement will never promote the peace and the joy of their neighbor. If you want to live a free life, live the life of wisdom brought about by the fear of God. And you'll notice in verse 3, this mindset must be handed down to each generation. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and the land flowing with milk and honey. As you enter the land, this mindset will be with you and passed on to the next generation. 
Thus, children are seen here as the blessing from God as the borders of Israel extend to what they will be in the time of Joshua. Well, that, that is the, the, the command. They're clearly connected to the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. Let's look also at the charge that God gives them in verses 4 to 9. Notice verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We need to begin with that first word there, don't we? Hear. What does that mean exactly? Well, can I just oversimplify, give you two meanings that this word can mean. First of all, it means to audibly hear, which, which offends me because I'm deaf in one ear. So forgive me while I put together a committee and storm some political building or something. But sometimes the word shamal means you heard words came into one ear, right? Husbands, right? You know something was said, right? Right? Honey, I heard you. I, you know, look, I know you want me to put up the Christmas tree between now and, and Christmas. You don't need to remind me every three months, okay? Between now and then. To audibly hear. So we get this in Proverbs 20. Uh, the hearing uh, ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Notice, ears hear. Not to insult your intelligence, but some of us did go to one county public schools, okay? We may need that explained to us. So sometimes the word just means to hear. That's it. Just hear. But in Hebrew, it means more than here. English, because we're complicated, we, we add words to sound smart. So to hear in English means sound, go into the ear, and to somewhat be processed. And for husbands, that means we can at least get out of a uh-huh, right? doesn't mean we understood what she said. We heard what she said. Uh-huh, that's good, honey. That's nice. We should do that again. Uh-huh, right? That's, that's enough for hearing. But in, in Hebrew, it means more than merely the receiving of audible sounds. It also means to listen and to obey. How many times have you said, look, you say you heard me, but are you listening to me? There is a difference there, isn't there? We want people to listen to us, not merely hear the, the sound of our voice. We want people to respond. We want people to understand. But in the Bible, it carries the idea of listening and responding appropriately to what has been heard. Notice, first of all, God hears and responds to us. He shamas us. He listens to us. So, for example, Leah, named Simon, um, uh, names her firstborn son Simon, which means the Lord has heard. Simon sounds a lot like Shema in the Hebrew. Um, or consider Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry. Shammai, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. It's a prayer. Don't, don't you want God to listen to you? To not merely just to say, oh, that state worker down in Frankfurt's talking. Can someone take notes? I'm busy. No, no, no. When we pray, we cry out to God. We want him to hear us. We want him to listen to us. We, 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 we want that, don't we? Much like any child would with their, with their father. What do we find in the Bible? That is precisely what God does. He hears our cries and responds accordingly. But not only does God hear and respond to us, God demands that we listen to him. To listen to God means to obey God. We need to know that in Hebrew, there is no word for obey. Parents added that word years later, I'm guessing. <laughs> right? Right? We just, mom, I heard you. Yeah, but there's got to be a word for you to understand what it is I'm trying to tell you. Right? So we've added the word obey in, in English because 
we like a big vocabulary, I guess. It's, it's not like that in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, to listen and to obey are two sides of the same coin. Let me give you a few examples of this. Jeremiah chapter 5 um, it says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, have ears but hear not. You, you see that? They hear me. They don't hear me. It's going in one ear and what? Going out the other, right? Same thing in Jeremiah chapter 6. To whom can I give this warning? Who will listen to me? Look, their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. See, the word of the Lord has become offensive to them. They find no place. Wait, wait. How can it be offensive if they didn't hear it? Because they hear, but they don't hear. They hear, but they don't listen. They're certainly not obeying. Ezekiel chapter 12. We see, Son of man, you are living in a rebellious house. They have ears to see, but do not see. Ears to hear, but they do not hear. For they are a rebellious house. You see that the rebellion is connected to the not listening. They will not shema. The word here there is shema. Zechariah chapter 7. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. They stopped up their ears from hearing. I can't help but think of every little kid. We've all done this. Put your fingers in your ears. You say, la, 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 la. You know someone's saying something, but you're going to plug those ears anyway. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 13? This is why I speak to them in parables. And quoting Isaiah, though seeing, they do not see, though hearing, they do not hear or understand. The whole point of the parables was, was a, a veil. They see the story. They hear the story. But they do not perceive or understand. But Exodus chapter 19, here they are at, at the foot of the mountain. And Moses is about to ascend on high to receive the special revelation of God. What does it say? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You see, the idea is, look, we're not getting the Ten Commandments so you can decorate your walls and you, you can protest Congress. We're getting the Ten Commandments so that in hearing them, you will obey them. The word Shema means more than, than audible hearing. So the command of this text, hear, O Israel, is to listen and obey. But listen and obey what exactly? What is it at the core that we're trying to get out here? There's just a few things. I think I got four here. What are we to listen and to, to obey to precisely in the Jewish identity now as believers? The first thing is we must listen and obey to the identity of Yahweh. You see the language there in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, what? He doesn't repeat the Ten Commandments. No, this is, this is the preamble of the Ten Commandments. you, you got to get this right. You get this right and everything else will make sense. Jesus will later say all the law and the prophets is summarized right here. Hear, O Israel, what do, should we hear? What should we receive and trust and obey? The Lord our God, Yahweh, the Lord is one. The identity of Yahweh is clearly articulated in verse 4. Now, we need to pause here and note that paganism is the natural tendency of the human heart. We don't want to believe in God. We want to believe in gods. That's true in America even right now. In America, we worship a host of God, a, a pantheon of gods. And we put our trust and our confidence in them. I think there are four major gods we worship as Americans. You tell me if you're guilty of these. One, entertainments. Two, intimacy. Three, power. Four, wealth. Can I prove it to you? The election was two weeks ago. You still stirred up about it? What are you worried about? 
you were well entertained for, for a year because politics has become entertainment. Much of entertainment has become intimacy, confused with it. Then there's issue of power. We want to control the other half of the country. Get our country back. Move the country forward, whatever. Then there's wealth. What are we most worried about as Americans? Our retirements? Our careers? Paying off debts? Getting the bigger house? Being secure? Think about it, parents. The number one thing you want for your children is that they live a better life than you ever lived. More than you do for their own soul. What are the four gods of our age? We could add more. What are the four big gods? Are these not it? Our politics have become entertainment. Entertainment has been confused with intimacy. Wealth drives it all and everything else. Yet for the Jews and for us at the center of their identity, at the center of our identity is not polytheism, but monotheism. All around the Israelites, uh, all around the Can- where they will be in Canaan, they are surrounded by people who worship the same things we still worship today. You can call it by a different name. It's still the same thing. Still the same gods we still worship today. And why is it so important that they see that they worship one God is they need to see that the creator God does not share his authority with anyone else. He does not share his glory with anyone else. There is one and one alone. He rules, he reigns all alone. He does so from above. Now, Moses is reminding the Jews that they are unique among the other nations. You can study the history of religions. You can study ancient Near Eastern culture and all this. And there is one nation that consistently worshiped one God. And this is the Jewish people. Everyone else were polytheistic. This is the natural tendency of humans. It's still even us, again, as, as Americans. That is why, if you read through Deuteronomy, let alone the rest of the Bible, the issue of polytheism and the temptation toward it keeps popping up. Let me give you a few examples. I don't think I put them up on the screen. Chapter 6, verse 4, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Chapter 7, verse 16, you shall, con- you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Chapter 7, verse 25, the carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared. Notice there that even if their idols are made of gold and silver, burn it. Because in taking the gold, taking the silver, you're surrendering your soul to a false idol. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God to worship these. Chapter 8, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today, you shall surely perish. Chapter 10, verse 17, the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and he doesn't take no bribe. But if you love power, you want influence, you'll take that bribe, you'll corrupt justice because you don't worship the Lord your God. You don't believe he's just one. Chapter 11, verse 16, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them over and over and over again. It's but a small sampling, just in the book of Deuteronomy. So in order for the Jewish nation to work, they must have a correct theology. All attention, all glory, all authority must come exclusively from Yahweh who shares his power, authority, and glory with no one. So not only must they get the identity correct, listen and obey. The Lord your God is one. Secondly, the worship of Yahweh, listen and obey. We see that there in verse 5, don't we? 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, verse 4 and 5 make what is called the Shema. Every morning and evening, the Jews would recite the Shema as a reminder of who they are. The Bible Project, I recommend their YouTube videos and their podcasts, all that sort of stuff. They, they say, quote, This prayer has been one of the most influential traditions in Jewish history and the function and functioned both as the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance, I like that imagery, and a hymn of praise. You wake up every morning, it's the first words out of your mouth, the first thought in your, in your head. Hear, O Israel, that's me. The Lord my God is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You go to bed, what's the last thought in your mind? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Think about it. How many of us would go sleep a little faster if that was the last thing on our mind? But when we worship the idols of our age, our mind is occupied by so much. So if part one of the Shema, speaking of the monotheism of God, if it emphasizes proper identity of Yahweh, part two, the part about love emphasizes proper worship of that God. You see here, love means more than being kind. Sometimes we confuse the words love and like, don't we? Of course I love them. I'm really nice to them. That's not what is meant here. In this context, love carries with it worship. If God alone is God, then to love him is to surrender our loyalty and hope to him exclusively. When we confess love for our spouse, for example, we are expressing the same. Love of neighbor is not the same thing of love of your spouse. When we say, honey, I love you and I love you exclusively, we are surrendered a lot of things too to make that relationship work. So until when we say we love God with our entire being, that's more than saying he's the big man upstairs. When I need him, he's always there for him. And it is rather to say my entire life is orientated around him. My very soul belongs to him. My attention is his. I listen and obey and I worship only him because this sort of love is an exclusive love. So too we... To proclaim the exclusivity of God to love him with our being is to worship him. And this is why idolatry is so evil. Because in idolatry, we are surrendering our being to one who is a lesser savior. So not only do we see the identity of Yahweh here, the worship of Yahweh here, but also the law of Yahweh here. It is in verse 6. You see, he says, these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. Love does not just mean worship. It also means obedience. If I love my spouse, I will not only exclusively love her, but I will not share it with anyone else. But I will also respect her wish and her needs. We understand this, right? To love a spouse is to surrender all of that, to put their needs ahead of yours. To love God means more than decorating our walls with spiritual messages. It requires obedience to his law. Remember that God's law means freedom. God did not deliver Israel out of the hand of slavery, political slavery, legal slavery, just to put them into moral slavery. That's not what God did. 
Rather, the exodus, the, the redemption of Israel out of Egypt, was a physical description of a spiritual reality. You are free, and now guess what? In Christ, you are free. That's the point of the exodus. It is a vivid imagery of God intervening to set the captives free. So then it is shocking to find the Israelites in the wilderness, controlled by their appetites and desires. What is it they want? To go to the promised land? No, they want to go back to slavery. Why? Because they never left their chains in Egypt. God is not leading them to moral bondage, but to true freedom. You are free under the word and will of God. Thus, obedience to Christ is freedom. Jesus says so much in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's called redemption. Redemption is a word which means buying a slave for the purpose of setting them free. The Redeemer takes all the costs. The slave just goes free. So language here is that the law is truly freedom. They are free and truly free, unlike the nations around them. Finally, there is the ethics of Yahweh. Verses 7 and 9, You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in, in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and, and on your gates. Now, what all of that means is secondary to the point that is being made here. The Shema, the law of God, the freedom of God, should be your primary attention. That's the, that's the main point. We, we can spend all time exegeting every word there is, but that's the main point, isn't it? When you walk outside, there's the law and the will of God. When you walk inside, there's the law and the will of God. When you speak, when you rise up, when you lay down, decisions you make, conversations you have, it is the law and the will of God. So the Shema moves each Jew to not only believe and worship, but also to share. Notice the centrality of discipleship is in the home. The point of the language is for parents to shape their home, their marriage, and their family after the faith. Gospel truths are not just to be, uh, or rather, gospel truths are to regularly be on the lips of parents regularly. Our entire home and our lives and our existence is to be God Christ centric. Nothing else is to get in the way. Church is not something we put on a calendar, but rather worship and discipleship is part of our being. Look, here, here's the reality. You and your family, you and your children, your grandchildren, your parents, whoever, all of us are being discipled right now. Could be discipled by a streaming service and we don't even recognize it. Could be discipled by, by schoolmates and classmates and, and workmates. But we are all being discipled. And what do many of us do? I'll give Jesus an hour of my time. And then we wonder why the world and the church, no less, is a disaster. And I believe this is the primary area of failure among American evangelicalism. Where would Christianity in the West be if every Christian home a hundred years ago, just those homes where children came out of those homes and continued the faith of their children and their children and their children, where would American evangelicalism be right now? Think it'd be the mess it is. A few years ago, 
Ken Ham released a book called They're Already Gone, quoting George Barnum's study. It says, a majority of 20-something, 61% of today's young adults, have been churched at one point during their teen years, but they are now spiritually disengaged. That is to say, not actively attending church or reading the Bible or praying. I think that number's a lot higher. Look, we all know this. You can put kids in youth group all you want. You have the largest youth group in the county, in the state, in the world, but guess what's going to happen? They're going to college, and what's going to happen? They're going to be discipled there because they weren't discipled here. This is a problem. It's a real problem that, that, that we have. And the reason isn't just because churches have inadequately discipled children and teenagers and young adults. It's because we've inadequately discipled parents and adults who are the primary pastors of the home. We think it is someone else's job we hire out. Think about it. If you don't like to do handyman work, you can hire that out to someone else to take care of it for you if the price is right. If you don't want to fix your car, you can hire someone out who would do that for you if the price is right. If you don't want to fix up the house, you don't want to do this or that, you can hire someone out to do that. And we do the same thing when it comes to discipleship, don't we? I don't really want to do that. I'm uncomfortable with discipleship in the home. What I'll do is, is we'll go to church an hour a week. They'll take care of it. We're really spiritual. We'll go two hours a week. We'll go to Sunday school. They'll take care of it. And then when something like COVID happens, what do we do? We panic because we're out of that routine because we fail to understand nothing should have changed in the home. With your children, they go out to the field with you. You come home. You cook dinner. You sit down. You enjoy your evening together. What, what is to be the focus? The home is to be shaped by the gospel. Mom and dad, how you fight with one another in conflict. Mom and dad, how do you love and lead and live in the gospel? It's the priority of the home. Why? Because the primary pastor of the home should not be the guy behind the pulpit, but the guy at the head of the dinner table. See, ritual is not gospel. Discipleship comes in obedience to the gospel. So saying a confession, as good as it is, is not sufficient. Doing a catechism, as good as it might be, isn't sufficient. But believing in the gospel and sharing, that is what is required of our lives. So we see here that Shemal is not just something you pray in the morning and the evening for a good Jewish boy or girl. Rather, it is part of who we are. So when we see that we are called to love God with our entire being, it may be worth our time to investigate exactly what the creator of the universe expected us to understand by that. So ask yourself, am I properly discipled? Have I properly been catechized, whether formally or informally? And if not, why not? Here, O East Frankfurt Baptist Church, the Lord your God is one and love him with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's pray.